Does immigration make a better world? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sabine Elchidiak and Peter Jaworski. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Sabine Elchidiak and Peter Jaworski. Sabine joined the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2017, and she is responsible for organizing and executing engaging educational programs for participants across Canada. Before that, for over four years, she worked as a senior policy advisor to Canadian federal ministers on issues relating to citizenship and immigration. Today, she continues to write and speak about immigration policy, among other things. Peter is an associate teaching professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches business ethics. Previously, he was a visiting research professor at Brown University, a visiting assistant professor at the College of Worcester, and an instructor at Bowling Green State University. He often lectures on the ethics of immigration, among many other things. Sabine, Peter, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having us, Alex. (laughs) It's awesome to have you guys on. I'll, I'll... And of course, back on as well. You guys have been each year, I think, at least twice uh, on each of your parts, which is awesome. So you know the you know the drill. We base each of our episodes on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is: Does immigration make a better world? And of course, this will give us a chance to explore why you both think more immigration is essentially a better thing for well everyone. And uh, of course, we're only going to have maximum an hour to hear today. This is going to be a very easy episode for me because this is something I know both of you on your own can talk about for hours and hours. So we definitely have enough material here. So I want to start out very general and just toss it out and, and see where we go. And we can alternate, perhaps go back and forth and all that great stuff right at the top. I mean, both of you, I've seen you claim in talks, writings or whatever else, claim that immigration has benefits not only for both those who are immigrating, the lives of the people who are immigrating, but it's also about those who are in the area receiving immigrants or those who are in a country where the immigrants are going to. Long story short, immigration is sort of good for or everyone seems to be one of both of your central claims often. So, Sabine, I'll just throw it to you first. First, let's say, is, is that the case? Is that fair to say? Is immigration good for everyone involved? We're not always just talking about the immigrants themselves, right? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I think it's great that people have a place to go when they're um, not just economically speaking, but also when they're in crisis. The fact that they can go somewhere else and be safe, that's really great for them. Um, But it's also really good for the receiving country. And we often talk about how great um, economic immigration is for the uh, economy in places like Canada. But, um, uh, you know, it, it isn't just a, that's not where the story ends. We're also uh, looking at really good numbers when we look at refugees as well. So in Canada, we've got uh, the rates of entrepreneurship are actually higher amongst refugees than Canadian born uh, people. So we've got 14 percent rates of entrepreneurship uh, with refugees compared to 12 percent. Uh, rates of entrepreneurship amongst the Canadian born. Uh, and when we're talking about entrepreneurship, we're talking about creating jobs for other people in the, in the receiving country. So they're, uh, people are coming to Canada, they're settling down, they're finding safety uh, for mo- the most part when it comes to refugee resettlement. Um, so that's great for them and their families and their children who are able to grow up in a place where they can go to school and not have to worry about their safety um, every day. Um, and, and in return, they are uh, great parts of society in Canada. They are creating jobs for other people in Canada. They are great employees. They're great uh, parts of the community. It isn't just about money. It's also uh, they're great neighbors. And, uh, you know, they create a great restaurant down the street. Why not? Sounds great to me. <laughs> so everybody sort of wins. Peter, as far as immigration making a better world, is it true that everyone sort of wins? What, what's your view on that? Um, so I, I feel as though every time I give a talk on immigration uh, or about borders, I feel like I am defending the very idea of Canada or the very idea of the United States. Um, it's no wonder to me that Canada and the United States are as wealthy as they are. It's no surprise to me that both Canada and the United States became wealthy very quickly. Both of these countries are essentially nations of immigrants. It's pretty remarkable. Sabine, you might know the exact numbers here, but 
It's remarkable to me that Toronto, which I consider one of the best cities in the world, I always love visiting Toronto. Um, I don't know how <laughs> I know people have people people listening to us from Alberta might have feelings about that about that city. However, the city of Toronto has um, more people who were born somewhere other than Canada than they have people who were born in Canada. There's a certain kind of dynamism, a certain kind of, I, I don't know, there's, there's a bit of a, um, um, Sabine mentioned entrepreneurship. Look, the people that get in their cars, get in a boat, travel so far away from the place where they are born, these are people who are willing to take a certain kind of risk, right? And people who are willing to take that kind of risk might be more willing, or I would guess are more willing, to take a different kind of risk, namely the risks involved in becoming an entrepreneur, in starting your own thing. Um, you also get the benefit of uh, additional dynamism. Right? Yeah, there are different ways of doing things in other parts of the world. Uh, if you allow people from all sorts of places to come and to try to make a life in, in this part of the world, you learn a lot of new things and so on. You ask the question whether it benefits the immigrants as well as the people who are here already. And the answer is clearly yes. It's sometimes worth pointing out to people who argue in favor of fewer immigrants or lowering the number of immigrants that we allow into Canada. That's not just a violation of the freedom of movement, which it is. And we can talk about whether or not that violation is justified. People have proposed arguments for why it's legitimate and appropriate for countries to sort of limit how many immigrants they allow uh, into a particular jurisdiction. That's fine. We can talk about that. But nevertheless, it is straightforwardly and uncontroversially a violation of people's freedom of movement. But apart from that aspect of it, a, a liberal right, something that at least those of us who call ourselves liberals ought to embrace and endorse. Uh, but apart from that, it's also a violation of my freedom of association as a Canadian, right? I mean, I'm living in the United States now. I'm a resident in the United States. But suppose I were in Canada and I want to hire someone from somewhere else. Well, come on now. Why can't I? Right. And, and if I want my family, my mom and my dad live in uh, Poland again. My sister lives in Amsterdam. If I want them to come visit me, it's a violation of my freedom to associate with whom I please uh, for the government to step in and say, no, they can't cross that border and come to your house. So, yeah, it's a benefit to both. Uh, in terms of economic outcomes, Sabine will, uh, uh, will tell us that the economic outcomes uh, have been really good. Uh, but also in terms of the liberal freedoms that I think more people should embrace and endorse, both the freedom of movement on the part of the immigrants and the freedom of association and uh, business or economic sorts of freedoms uh, that people living in those countries ought to enjoy. Yeah, I'm actually glad that Peter sort of flipped it around there at the end, because of course, I started the whole conversation off by talking about immigration being good for the person immigrating and also the people in, in the receiving area of the immigrant, if you will. But Peter's point at the end there, basically, that limiting immigration or forbidding someone to immigrate is not only uh, bad for the immigrant often or almost all the time, but could also be bad or even perhaps violating the rights of the people in the country or in the area trying to receive an immigrant, if you will, for instance, a, a, a business person. Uh, trying to hire someone, for example. So, Sabine, on the policy side, specifically in Canada, I, I don't think a lot of people actually know, for example, that, for instance, if uh, as someone from a different country wants to line up a house, let's say they found a landlord they want to rent from, let's say they even find a job and they've lined that up and, and, and things like that, it isn't just as easy as someone crossing the border, getting a plane and, and living their life, right? There's actually a lot of blockages, right? I, can you outline some of the factors that the government actually considers that are actually sort of barriers to immigration? I know country of origin and status is a, is a whole thing. So maybe you could talk a bit about that because it isn't just as easy as getting on a plane and coming over, is it? No, it's not. It's, uh, it, it is a process, especially, uh, I mean, it's different, obviously, if you're an economic immigrant or if you're a refugee. 
uh, or any sort of humanitarian immigrant. On the economic side, um, Canada has made it a little bit easier recently through express entry to uh, have economic immigrants come to Canada faster if they qualify. Now, getting there to the qualification point is very difficult um, for lots of people, not for others. But in many cases, uh, you're going to have to qualify through points. So you get a certain amount of points for your age, a certain amount of points for your education, um, and, you know, like your, your background, your and, and, and also what Canada or the provinces individually are seeking out in terms of employment, what is in demand at the time. Uh, you also get extra points if you've already landed a job offer in Canada. Um, the employer on the other side of this is uh, also uh, held up to a very high standard in trying to show the government of Canada that they've tried to recruit in Canada and haven't been able to find somebody um, in, in many cases, uh, or they have to uh, they, they have to comply by a lot of rules and regulations of which uh, if they violate them, they have very large fines they have to pay. Uh, and the government presents this in a way that makes it look like it's helping refu- uh, it's helping immigrants because they don't want them to come into a situation, an abusive situation with an employer, uh, which is partially true. But for the most part, it just blocks people from getting a better job than they might have in their in the country there of, of origin. So um, they really want to come to Canada, and maybe uh, those barriers are a little too high economically for um, the employer in Canada, or. In other cases, perhaps they're a little bit worried about the fact that they have to go back to their country of origin after a few years. Uh, for example, in the temporary foreign worker program, you do not get to hire these people permanently. So it, it makes it a little bit less desirable to bring people to Canada when you know they have to leave after a few years. Uh, and the pathway to permanent residency for people of lower skilled employments is very difficult in Canada. Uh, they are held to a different standard. So they don't qualify for things like express entry because uh, Canada just doesn't want them to live here permanently. So they come here as temporary workers and they have to leave after four years or after a certain number of years. So um, it isn't as easy as uh, we like to say as Canadians, like, oh, immigrating to Canada is so easy, so nice. We're such open people. And we are. We are an open country. However, there are still a lot of roadblocks and red tape Uh, When it comes down to the nitty gritty of getting people over here, it is difficult to just get on an airplane and come here because somebody thinks you'd be a great chef in their Indian restaurant. uh, And they think that you have this you have this knack for making this the perfect, uh, you know, thing in this restaurant that nobody else. They can't find anybody else to do it. They have to prove to the government that that's that's a fact. That's pretty hard to do. (laughs) So um, you're going to have to wait a while. uh, The restaurant has to wait a while. And uh, it is very difficult. Um, and it's a whole other story when it comes to temporary immigration for 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 that reason. I, I am glad that you differentiate between sort of like, if you will, that that economic immigration discussion and refugees, for instance, because different countries handle both those trains of thought differently with di- different policies. And uh, and you know, and I'm going to go to Peter for a second because uh, for those of you who don't know, Peter uh, lectures a lot and talks on the ethics of immigration. So if you ever see that online post or anything, we definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, specifically on, on that sort of ethics of immigration point, Peter, whether a lot, specifically the Canada and the United States, whether they come out right and say it, it seems that these policies often amount to, especially with these economic scoring systems and things like that, that's being outlined, if you are the right kind of this and right kind of that, good for you, your points go up. Uh, that's sort of implicitly saying, well, we only want the good kind of immigrants then on, 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 on the economic side, right? I mean, that's essentially credential recognition. What do you say to someone who makes that argument, Peter, that says, like, let's say they're Canadian, they come to you and say, yes, of course, we want to be open to immigrants, but we only want the people that score very well or the good kind of immigrants, someone that's going to want to be productive and so on and so forth. Yeah, a um, couple of things to say in response. One is to highlight the fact that at least the way I wanted to say that at least the way I see it, but I think more broadly, more people should accept this view. What makes people productive is yes, it's partly their own um, hard work, their own sort of virtue as it were, right? Like people, some people work harder than others. Some people try harder than others and so on. That's true. But the vast majority of the productivity of any individual person is determined by the institutional matrix within which they operate. So it's the institutions in Canada and in the United States that assist with the kind of productivity that we see 
in both of these countries and like many countries in Europe and so on. It's because they enforce the rule of law in a certain way. Uh, it's because they enforce contracts. It's because we can rely on the institutions. You know, you can call the police and they will show up. We have really exceptional institutions. And so, yes, um, the how hard you work plays a significant role in how well you end up. But the vast majority of how well we end up doing is actually a function of where in the world we are born, right? I don't recall the exact specific number, but there were economists who have estimated uh, what percentage of your income, your lifetime income is attributable to like what factor, like how much schooling you have, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever. And they found that the overwhelming majority, when you look at a, at a global scale, it's where you are born that makes like a 70 to 80, maybe even higher than that percent difference. There isn't anything, it isn't like people vary dramatically in terms of their, um, you know, hard work ability or something like that around the world. It's not like people vary that much in terms of their personality around the world. But what you see remarkable variations in is different institutions around the world. You take a person from Poland, like myself, right? And you put them in Canada and, uh, you know, now things have changed in Poland. Poland has improved uh, their institutions quite a bit. But back when I was born, right? Uh, um, uh, thankfully, I ended up in Canada. I'm, you know, I, I ended up being much more productive not because the amount of effort I'm willing to put into my work has changed, but rather because the institutions that I'm surrounded by have changed. And I think that's true for most people. So, okay, Canada has uh, a very restrictive set of rules and they pick and select the quote-unquote best immigrants. But nevertheless, the average immigrant is a net benefit to Canada and the United States. I'll keep mentioning the United States, uh, <laughs> even though maybe, maybe I should just talk about Canada. But um, the average immigrant is a net benefit. Even if we didn't have all of those rules or whatever, look, it takes a certain amount of um, willingness to bear a risk to change. Everybody's comfortable with what they know. Everybody's comfortable. How many people travel the world? How many people move in their lives? Not, not a lot. It turns out that there's so many people who are born in Canada in like, let's say, Oshawa, where I lived in, in, um, in Canada. They're born in Oshawa. They get a job in Oshawa. They find someone to marry in Oshawa. They raise their kids in Oshawa and so on, right? They don't travel any further than, let's say, 200 kilometers or something throughout their entire lives. Um, that's fine because Oshawa is the city that motivates Canada for, for my... Oshawa listeners, you get you get that, right? It's the city that motivates. It used to be the city that motivates Canada, but it's a really great city. Uh, very dynamic. Lots of things happen there. So it's fine if you live there in your entire life. But now picture the person who's born in Oshawa and then decides to pick up and like move to Saskatchewan or like Saskatoon or pick up and move to, to I don't know, Washington, D.C. or Dunkirk, Maryland, right? Or somewhere else. That person is willing to take a certain kind of risk. And so the types of people that are willing to take risks like that, I've already said it, are more likely to be entrepreneurial. They're more likely to be, um, right, to, to be good for the place wherever they end up. So, yeah, uh, you know, all these criteria that we have, I don't know if we should have all of that criteria anyways. It makes sense to check for communicable diseases. It makes sense to check for a criminal record. But apart from those two things, I mean, the world should be the way the borders of the world should be like the borders between Alberta and Saskatchewan. Right. The borders between Alberta and Saskatchewan are if you want to work in Saskatchewan and live in Alberta, fine. Nobody is going to stop you. But if you want to live in Alberta, but work in like Washington state or something like that, you know, you can make that happen, but people are going to stop you. But at any rate, that's the way I see it. And back to the the amounts of people and the kinds of restrictions and that kind of thing, Sabine, I think from like that sort of, if you will, classical liberal libertarian perspective, there's also sort of like a 
um, like we, we talked, we talk, I should step, take a step back and say, you know, we've talked about the ethics. We've talked about what it prevents people's freedom of movement. We talked about the discussion about should the government be regulating it. We talked about if I, as a business owner, you know, want to hire someone that's violating my rights, if that person can't come in, all that kind of stuff. But from a pure market sort of allocation perspective, if we go into that area of sort of, like I said, libertarian or classical liberal perspective for a second, a lot of people who actually would more or less agree that the market, for example, is good at determining how much bread should go to the store. Um, it seems that, on the other hand, they would turn around and talk about uh, knowing to some degree how many immigrants to one town or one province should go. So, I mean, do, do you view that the, the same way, uh, Sabine? You tell me from the policy perspective, is is the sort of all the, all the things you described earlier, which I don't need to repeat, all the number counting, all the credential scoring, all that kind of stuff, should, is that kind of just not a little bit of a command economy sort of dictatorial sort of bureau process over really just creating a certain number of immigrants that come into the country. Should this not be more of a market-based thing then? Of course, if a, if a business is uh, in need of an employee and they found the perfect employee abroad, it shouldn't be hard to hire that employee and bring that employee over here. The only person who knows how many immigrants, how many immigrants they want to employ or how many employees they need in general is the business owner. Uh, it's very difficult for me to say when I'm not talking about immigrants that I think that the government knows best about uh, how businesses should run. And a lot of people listening to this podcast will agree. And you're right that when it comes to immigration, the conversation changes a little bit. And I don't really, uh, I don't really understand why. <laughs> it is the same thing. If a, if a, if a employee um, is, will work very well for an employer, uh, it's going to enhance that business. It's going to make that business better. The only person who knows these facts, uh, who has the knowledge to uh, understand uh, what is how it's going to affect their business is the employer, is the people who run the business, um, are the employees running the business themselves. Uh, it is not. It is not the decision of somebody in a centralized uh, place like government or some department, like the Department of Innovation or the Ministry of Innovation or the Ministry of Small Business. They don't know what's going on with small businesses. Only small businesses know what's going on with small businesses. Uh, even in larger uh, businesses or corporations. Those corporate uh, managers know what's going on within their departments. Uh, I don't think that the minister of, uh, of small business or the minister of innovation or whatever knows what's going on in that particular business. How could they? It's impossible to have all of that information, have all that knowledge. Um, so when a employer says to you, I would like to uh, hire these great IT people from another country because I really need to have a demand for them and, and not enough Canadians are signing up, or I just think that those people would be the best people for the job without even thinking about uh, anything else. And then you say no, like this is not classical liberal approach to <laughs> entrepreneurship or business. Like, I mean, if you're the right person for the job, you should be able to employ that person. Um, like Peter was saying, uh, immigration should be uh, like uh, going from Alberta to Saskatchewan, but also uh, hiring somebody should be like hiring whoever you want. You're looking through the resumes, finding the perfect person. Alex, you run a successful business. You could tell us that when you want to hire somebody, what do you do? You look through it. You look through the resumes and you pick the best person, you interview them. They sound like a great candidate. Like you sign them up. Would you like the government to come and tell you that they actually think these three people will be really great candidates? I mean, why? that's basically what they're doing when they're restricting you from uh, bringing somebody in. So the fact that there are caps on these things is a bit strange. <laughs> if the, the, a company's not going to just uh, hire like 15 extra people that they can't afford, they want to make money at the end of the day. So they're going to uh, bring in uh, the amount of people that they want, that they need to run their business. Why are we telling them that there's a cap? And if we reach that cap, that then there's no more people that should come in uh, to, to service that business. It doesn't make sense. Right. And I just, yeah, if I can chime in, Alex, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say the question of like how many immigrants we should have in this country is similar, at least in principle, to like how many babies should we have in this country? Like what is the appropriate number of babies that Canadians or Americans can have each year? You know what? It's it's not really up to the government to decide how many babies people can have. There are two ways to grow the population of a country. One is to like import people, so importation, right? And the other one is to make new people or procreation, right? You can either, you can increase the population of a country either through uh, importation 
or immigration, right? Or through procreation. So how many babies should Canadians have? Is that is that something that the government should say? No, just as Sabine pointed out about companies, we can say the same thing that the relevant unit, the relevant decision maker ought to be the family, right? The families decide how many babies they want to have, if they want to have babies at all. And the idea that the government would say, well, you know, there's a there's a limit. Uh, we can only allow 300,000 new babies that I mean, apart from being not a liberal policy, it's also not a kind of conservative policy either. I think conservative listeners are going to agree that, like, actually, the family gets to decide how many babies. That's not the government's business. I just wonder why they don't apply that same reasoning to the case of immigration and to the needs of businesses and uh, and others that can make that kind of decision. Yeah. And in addition to what Peter is just saying, um, let's move away from employers for a little bit. There's a program in Canada called that I've spoken about on the podcast before called the Private Sponsorship Program. In the private sponsorship program, there are organizations that are ready, willing, and financially able to bring in refugees to Canada and take care of them for the first full year. We're talking about them putting money towards taking care of every need that they have for the first year and sometimes longer if that refugee, uh, if it's necessary for that particular refugee or refugee family. They, uh, that's another case of I'm wondering why there's a cap on that. If organizations have the ability financially um, and and have enough people to run the programming um, to bring in 15, 20, 30 refugees. And then the government comes and says, actually, we're only accepting so many refugees this year. Um, We have to turn away your applications. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. We're not asking anything of the government. The government's not even putting money down. (laughs) They're just reviewing the applications, you know, but everything that happens after before and after they settle is the responsibility of the sponsor. So uh, if the, market demand of sponsorship is at a certain number uh why are we pushing back against that and saying it's not they don't know what's best for them that's essentially what we're saying at the end of the day we don't those sponsors don't know what's best for them actually they should only be taking about 10 even though they have the money and the means to bring in 15 but it it doesn't actually matter at the end of the day Uh, so that's another part that's another sort of market i'm putting that in quotation marks uh you know uh mechanism that we're stalling when we put a cap on things And actually, that's an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sabine Elchidiak and Peter Jaworski today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Travis Smith, John Robson, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sabine Elchidiak and Peter Jaworski today. So right before the break, uh, there was an interesting point. You know, Sabine pivoted our attention to the refugee side of the discussion um, because we talked about sort of like, you know, for example, before that, we talked about those making a decision, for instance, to move for a job or what have you. Like, you know, we can call them economic immigrants, if you will. But then we brought up the refugee approach. I think when a lot of people think of refugees, asylum seekers or whatever else, that kind of category, they often think of the government sort of handing someone a check and putting them up in a hotel or something like that. Though that does sometimes often happen, as Sabine just described, oftentimes there are opportunities. There aren't wide avenues. They should be wider, in my opinion. But there are avenues for people to privately sponsor refugees and so on and so forth. One thing I want to bring up on that on and put to you, Peter, to start off with is sort of this back to the ethics of immigration point, the responsibility discussion. When we talk about refugees, asylum seekers, people trying to get out of a bad situation, for example, you know, we have... One we could talk about right now, for example, in, in Ukraine, terrible issue. People are r- running to different countries like Poland and so on and so forth. If the government, for example, in Canada, actually limits the amount of people that private citizens, for instance, can bring into the country, is there a moral argument that by not acting or by preventing someone from acting, the government or whoever is actually preventing someone from doing something is actually taking some responsibility for making the situation worse or potentially what could be happening to these people? 
Yeah, of course. Uh, of course they are. It's like somebody trying to run out of a burning building and you go there and you say, oh, pardon me, you can't. This is private property. You can't. You can't, you can't run out of the burning building, right? It's the same, it's the same thing, right? Right. Um, or, uh, well, let me put it this way. Morally speaking, it's the same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. If, you pre- if you prevent someone from leaving a disastrous situation, um, then you are, in a way, culpable. This is what I meant by freedom of movement. By default, people should be free to go wherever they please. And then the limit on that movement is set by private property. But even when we have private, by the way, not like government-owned property or something like that, but private property, at least that's the standard liberal view, the one that I adopt here, right? But um, but if you attempt to like stop people from going somewhere that they want to go, it is a violation of the freedom of movement. You should be free to go wherever you please, unless there's a really good reason to stop you from going wherever you'd like to go, right? Mm-hmm. And if you interfere with that one, you violate the freedom of movement of the other person. But if they're doing something like trying to escape from a burning building, then you are at least indirectly responsible for at least part of the harm that happens to that person. Mm -hmm. I've often heard people sort of make the um, argument that at the end of the day, although something terrible might be happening, that doesn't mean necessarily they should be taking our responsibility for it. I mean, you know, some people crassly just throw out the it's not my problem argument. But I suppose we have to be careful here and say, like, it's one thing to not want to do something for somebody, let's say, uh, whether or not that's good or bad. Let's just put that aside for a sec. It's another to disallow or prevent someone else from doing something for somebody else, i.e. through government or restrictions. Yeah, I mean, with the Sabine was mentioning the private sponsorship program for refugees. I don't know why we have a cap on that at all or ever. I don't know why we don't have a private sponsorship program operating all the time, 365 days a year, no matter what. If there are people in Canada or in the United States or elsewhere who want to privately sponsor refugees or immigrants, right? Why don't we just allow them to do that? And then the cap is just whatever they choose, right? So however many people line up to accept immigrants from abroad, that's how many immigrants we will have. Here you have, I mean, a standard objection. So here's an objection that I get all the time from surprisingly libertarians. I don't think think these are people who have thought through their libertarian position, because I just don't think you you can be a libertarian and think this, but that's like a, a separate issue. The standard objection that I hear is that like, yeah, I'm okay with immigrants, uh, but we can't have so many until we eliminate the welfare state. Now notice that, and then the claim is like, look, I'm paying for these other people through my taxes. And so it's legitimate for us to prohibit them or to limit their freedom in order to minimize the amount of money that I have to pay for them. But notice that people do not apply that same argument across the board. So they will not say something like, yeah, I mean, I think people should be free to smoke cigarettes, except, you know, we have a socialized medicine. And so I'm paying a portion of their health care bill. So we need to limit by whether or not people smoke, whether or not people uh, uh, eat certain kinds of foods, you know, whether or not people exercise or like how frequently they exercise. Nobody buys that kind of argument. No libertarian, I should say nobody, (laughs) No libertarian buys that kind of argument. Or, or back to the baby thing contexts. again, too, right? Like you said, nobody then says, hey, we got to get rid of the welfare state before you can have more babies. <laughs> or like we will we will allow you to have more than two children as soon as taxes don't pay for schools. Right. And all the, look, every baby is a net tax consumer, right? Every human being is a net net tax consumer until at least they are 18 years old. And actually universities also receive subsidies from the government. So people are net tax consumers until they're about 25, let's say. And then they begin paying back into the system. That's 25 years of tax consumption. But I have never met a libertarian who says, well, therefore it makes sense to limit the number of babies that people can have. Or because someone uh, uh, costs me in terms of my taxes, that justifies or warrants a limit on certain kinds of freedoms. It feels to me a little bit like cherry picking to pick 
you know, the, the case of immigration. It's like people think about that. I say people, libertarians will think about that in a specific sort of way. They won't apply the same reasoning across the board in other contexts. So it is a little bit of cherry picking. By the way, an argument like this, if you follow Chris Fryman on Twitter, he's a professor of philosophy at William and Mary. He posts amazing memes on this topic just to poke mm-hmm. fun of what you might describe as, as just obviously inconsistent libertarians on the issue of immigration. Great. And, and as our time really, really swings forward here, folks, as I said, there's, there's so much more that I wish we could cover, but in the time allotted, we, we certainly don't have hours upon hours. So um, I want to move us to one thing right here, which is that I want to quickly talk about sort of the ideal and then the practical as, as far as policy. So th- this first one might, might be really quick, because although we can go into some specifics, uh, is it fair to say that the ideal for both of you is sort of what we would call some sort of open border situation for places like Canada and the United States. Uh, Sabine, I'll start with you first. Is it fair to say that's your ideal overall? Yeah, definitely more open borders. I don't think that it's practical to go um, like, you know, from zero to a hundred overnight. I think uh, what I really want is just for programs in Canada to um, go towards in the direction of uh, being more liberal of allowing more people in, of allowing people uh, like employers and and refugee uh, groups to decide who comes uh, to Canada, how many people come to Canada, just being able to move in that direction uh, would be really great. And there's a lot we can do incrementally to allow for better and more immigration in Canada. For example, um, privately sponsored refugees. Uh, there's so many, so much red tape that we can eliminate tomorrow. It's not hard. You just have to decide. It is not even a legal thing. All you have to do is change the regulation. It's very, very easy. Um, they can do things like, I mean, government institutions just simply cannot provide refugees with emotional support. So if we are giving more responsibility to privately sponsored refugee groups, that means we have to allow them to operate in in a universe where they don't have to uh, jump through every single hoop that the from the UNHCR's hoops to the Canadian government's hoops. Um, People who are in crisis need to leave now. They need to get out now. They don't have time for us to sit down and decide on uh, red tape and who's coming and what kind of refugees we are interested in and what kind we don't want. Like we really want refugees to speak English. But these things are not what we should be thinking about when some people are in crisis and there's an emergency like we see now in Ukraine and like we saw recently in Afghanistan and before that in Syria. there's things that we can do. For example, we can make sure that uh, the refugees, if they've left a crisis, we don't have to check their papers. We don't have to check their papers that they are certified by the UNHCR. Um, these people have fled for their lives. We know that they are leaving. Uh, just and somebody's somebody's putting an application to bring them to Canada. Let them come to Canada. Um, things, like, small things like that, are just work to slow things down. And the reasons for them are not as good as you might think. Uh, so let's start with that um, to start moving towards a more open borders world. Uh, it's just trying to find ways to get people uh, to be able to immigrate in an easier fashion with less red tape, uh, not just on the refugee side, but also on the economic side. We have moved towards that in Canada in the past, as I've said earlier, when it comes to express entry. A lot of people, a lot of economic immigrants can get to Canada in six months or sometimes less. That's really great. Let's keep moving towards that. Uh, to make the point system fair, to make sure that we have paths to permanent residency for uh, people who are here uh, temporarily. Uh, it isn't just about high, uh, I'm putting those in quotations as well, high-skilled workers. Uh, it's also about low-skilled workers. I want low-skilled workers to be able to stay in Canada. We need them as well. There, there aren't Canadians to do some jobs. Some people uh, who are coming here temporarily are willing to do these jobs. Great, let them stay. Let them have a pathway to permanent residency. Why not? Just because they work in jobs that we deem, that we've decided uh, are lower skilled, they're essential to our lives in many ways, just like uh, other high skilled jobs are. There shouldn't just be pathways for residency for people who are doing high skilled work. Let's start there. These are things that we can do now to make sure that immigration becomes uh, more accessible to more people uh, and that we, uh, we garner the full benefits as a society of immigration. As we've talked about, Peter and I, in the past hour, immigration is really great for immigrants and for the receiving country. 
So if you want to make, uh, if you want to continue uh, having reaping the benefits of, of immigration, we have to let more people come, people that want to come, uh, and not just the people that we deem uh, the best of society, because we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> For the most part, how do we know? How does the government know who the best for society is? How do they know what we need economically? How do they know uh, that we need certain documents from refugees? They don't know that. Uh, refugees know that. Refugee groups know that. Employers know that. So let's let them do what they do best uh, and, and get out of the way. And that makes things a little bit easier for immigrants. That would be great. Peter, same thing over to you. I mean, from we can talk about the practical in a second, what you'd like to see. But from the ideal perspective, uh, would you would it be fair to say that more or less your, your stance is ultimately open borders? The ideal is Alberta and Saskatchewan. The border <laughs> between Alberta and Saskatchewan is what I would like to see over the long run. In terms of the practical side of things, we saw movements towards this. The European Union is an interesting attempt to do something like what happened in the United States and in Canada to allow borders. I mean, we have effectively administrative borders. The government of Alberta is a real government. The government of Saskatchewan is a real government. The fact that people who were born in Saskatchewan can live and work in Alberta and just travel across the border whenever they please doesn't undermine the existence or the reality (laughs) of the government of Alberta or the government of Saskatchewan. That's the ideal. I think steps have been taken. The European Union is uh, a a good step. I think uh, private refugee and a private immigrant program would be a good step in that direction. I I wanted to point out, actually, Alex, um, I was born in Poland. And throughout my life, there have been many things that have made me sort of proud of of Poland, but I've never felt more pride than right now with the situation in Ukraine. You have to understand that Poland right now has increased their population by 5%. 5% increase in the total population of Poland. That's the number of Ukrainians that have sought refuge in, you know, my birth country. In three weeks, three weeks, four Poland. weeks, something like that, right? Just three or four weeks. It's unbelievable. Right. The, the figures and the numbers are unbelievable. And we'll have an opportunity to find out what happens um, in a year or two or three. My guess is that things will go well. And Poland has essentially said to anyone who manages to cross the border into Poland that they'll be taken care of. And the response of the Polish people, I did, geez, like it fills me with pride as a human being. Forget the fact that I was born in Poland for a moment, but just as a, to see, you know, people coming with strollers, people driving to the border in their cars, just to help some people escape a disastrous situation. Right. I'd like to see more of that around the world. Germany was remarkable, I believe, with Syrian refugees. They let in over a million, if I'm not mistaken, Syrian refugees into Germany. Poland is doing it now with Ukrainian refugees. My guess is that many of those Ukrainian refugees are going to end up make their permanent home in Canada. Right. If um, Canada has the second highest population of Ukrainian-born people next to the Ukraine. So I imagine that many people in Canada are really desperately trying to get their family and their friends from, right now, Poland to Canada. I hope Canada allows them to do that. And on that that train of thought here, actually, I thought it'd be an interesting point to note that um, although... uh, two of us here cannot speak to being a refugee, for example, the, the one remaining can, can be Peter. And we'll talk about that in a sec. All three of us do have our own immigrant stories and backgrounds overall that we can talk about, or at least from that sort of thing. So I think that's very interesting that there's uh, three people here that can say that uh, Canada uh, is, is like in Peter's case, he's in the States, but Canada is one of their homes, for example, but, uh, but none of us are old stock Canadians. Uh, but we are here on a, uh, Canadian podcast uh, from the Institute for, for Liberal Studies. So I think that's, that's very interesting. Um, I thought it'd be very interesting just to, to share a little bit about that. Specifically, uh, Peter, uh, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, you, you're, especially with the refugee type of 
background that you have. I thought you, you'd want, want to share that because I think uh, a good good portion of your early life was was literally living this, right? You had to move places. Uh, you had to deal with sort of your identity, feel like it's changing, finding a home. Would you like to share a bit about that and, and talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I feel like I've been an immigrant my entire my entire life for the most part. If you ask me like what I feel like uh, in my heart of hearts, I say that I'm Canadian, right? But uh, as you know, as I've mentioned, I was born in Poland back when Poland was uh, a communist country, uh, not exactly a great place to be born in. Um, and my parents at the time, I'll tell you the broader story, my parents at the time became naively involved in politics. Um, and when I say naively, I mean, they didn't like personally actively be like, they weren't fans of the communist government, but they weren't activists. Like they didn't go and protest the government or anything like that. Instead, their friends from college would ask them to do political things. My parents would say yes. So for example, when I was a baby, my mom's, uh, my mom's friends approached her and said, hey, would you like to hand out these like anti-government pamphlets. These were Solidarność pamphlets. That was the union movement against the communist government at the time. And my mother said, yeah, sure. And so the way she tells the story is when I was a baby in a pram, right, or a stroller, my mother would hand out these leaflets to total and complete strangers. Like, oh, do you hate the government? <laughs> yeah, me too. Here, read, a, read an anti-government pamphlet, which is really, really risky if you think about it. Similarly, my dad had friends who approached him and, and they said, hey, uh, listen, Lech, that's my dad's name, Lech, can we hide a radio receiver for Radio Free Poland somewhere in your house? Just a brief tangent here. Uh, at the time, there was a radio station. Some, some listeners might be familiar with the like Radio Free Cuba, Radio Free Poland. There were all these like Radio Free and then name a communist country, which were illegal underground radio stations that pushed out a message of, of, of freedom, right? Sort of like the curious task, right? Except not, not illegal. Right? <laughs> um, and so what did my dad say when he was approached by his friends? Super illegal to have one of these receivers in your house. My dad said, yes, of course. And I'll show you where you can hide it. And they said, no, 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 that's not how this works. The way this works is you make a copy of a key to your home and you give us a copy of the key to your home. And then when you are away from your house, we may or we may not go in your home and like hide the receiver somewhere in your house. And the reasoning behind this is so that you have plausible deniability. If the government ever discovered that there was a receiver in your home, you can plausibly say, I didn't know, I knew nothing about this, right? So again, uh, myself, my sister, we were little kids. You know, my dad <clears throat> had just started a small family. What did he say to his friends? He said, yeah, sure. And he made a copy of a key to his house. I should say to our house. And he gave it to his friends. Now, to this day, I have no idea whether or not a radio receiver was actually placed in our home. But I do know that my dad made a copy of a key to his house. Okay, so I tell you all of this by way of background, because at one point we asked for permission to travel to Germany on vacation, to West Germany on vacation, so outside of the communist bloc of countries. And at the time in Poland, you had to request permission if you were traveling outside of the communist bloc. Um, and this request of permission was effective because all of our passports were held at the local police station. So you would go there and you would request your passport. You would ask for permission to travel uh, abroad. And typically, the Polish government, just like communist governments in other parts of the world at the time, they were not okay with people traveling outside of the communist bloc of countries. Every once in a while, people were given permission. But when they were, uh, they would typically split up families. So they would say to you, Alex, they would say, yeah, here's your passport. You may travel to West Germany and you may take your daughter, Sabine, right, with you. However, uh, your wife and your other daughter, uh, unfortunately, they're going to have to stay behind. And the idea behind splitting families up like that is that it would it would sort of increase the odds that people wouldn't escape from Poland. People would return because half their families were there, right? But in our case, 
And I think it's because by Polish standards, we were very wealthy. My dad was a dentist, right? My grandmother on my father's side was a dentist as well. Dentistry was a privileged profession at the time, which meant that my father had a private income on top of the public income that everybody received in Poland. And my dad's clientele were primarily West Germans who'd cross the border into Poland to get their teeth done. And so he was a very expensive dentist. <laughs> and so by Polish standards, we had lots of stuff that our neighbors did not have. And maybe for that reason, the Polish, the police there, the Polish government decided to give all four of us permission to go vacation in West Germany. And okay, we got our passports. We went to West Germany and it was never my parents' intention to escape. Their intention was to return to Poland. But while we were in West Germany, my dad got a phone call from his mother, and she said that, like, the local authorities would like to meet with him. That, you know, will you go for a police interview? Um, they're asking for an interview. And these interviews at the time happened for all sorts of reasons, like parking tickets, whatever. All kinds of random stuff would come with this, like, interview at the local police station. However, that's also how people got disappeared, meaning that's also people would receive one of these requests for an interview and then their friends would never hear from them again. They would end up in jail. And so there we were in West Germany on vacation. And my mother was sitting there thinking like, oh, oh no, what if this is about the leaflets that I, the anti-government leaflets that I was busy handing out? And my dad was thinking, oh no, what if they found the radio receiver somewhere in our house? And there it was, we were on vacation, and that's when my parents at night decided that they were never going to go back to Poland again. And that was the decision at the time, by the way, because both my parents were convinced that communism in Poland was forever. The Berlin Wall would stand forever. The decision that my parents were making at the time was a decision to never see their parents ever again right my mother's my mother's sister she thought she would never see my mother you know her sister again my father thought he would never see you know his parents again that was the decision uh, that they made so we filed for political refugee status in west germany it was granted and right away we filed uh, for permission to, to immigrate into uh, another free country west germany was a free country at the time too um, and that country is, of course, Canada. But it took Canada three years to approve our request to immigrate. I love Canada. I'm really grateful to uh, have been able to grow up in Canada. You know, listeners can't see this, but you can because we're on a Zoom call. In the background, I still have my Toronto Blue Jays right. towel right there. Go Jays, go! Right, <laughs> and I'm a big Leafs fan. Still am. We'll watch every Leafs game. I'm already planning the parade route, so I've got it in my head exactly where they're going to go with the Stanley Cup. It's happening this year, everybody. Just uh, FYI, also I predict I Austin I Matthews. Agree. Austin Matthews will win not just the Rocket Richard trophy, but also the MVP. He's gonna he's gonna win that this year too. Where was I? Right. So I'm really grateful to Canada. Love Canada. Feel in my heart like I'm a Canadian. Uh, uh, but it took Canada three years, and that's three years of our lives that we can never uh, get back. So it took them three years. They gave us permission. We flew out initially to Scarborough. Then we uh, bought a home in Oshawa. My dad started his own company. There he goes, Sabine. He's one of the 14% of immigrants that start their own company at its peak. I think my dad was uh, uh, responsible for employing something like 14 Canadians. right? So my dad was responsible for the incomes of 14 Canadians this refugee slash immigrant from from Poland. And then since then, I, uh, I ended up doing my PhD uh, in uh, the great state of Ohio in the United States. And then uh, I got offered a job at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I have lived in the United States now for, I want to say, 14 years. <laughs> no, it's got to be more than that. I think like 16 years. 
like, I don't know, five years plus. I've been at Georgetown for 10, so 15 or 16 years, something like that. I am not a citizen in the United States. This is 16 years I've lived in. Are we allowed to curse? Because I feel like cursing. But like 16 years I've been living in this fucking country, and I'm still not a citizen of the United States of America. Now, of course, that makes sense, because if you're born here, you have to wait 18 years until you can vote in the United States. Not that I'm eager to cast the ballot in the United States, but right. But at any rate, I got a green card. I married a, a beautiful American from the great state of, uh, of Iowa. So I'm, I'm a permanent resident now, but still not yet. A citizen. So if you look at my life, the scope of my life, I was a refugee for three years. I was, it took us four years to become citizens of Canada. So that's seven years I was in limbo. And then uh, I've been in the U.S. for 16 years, still not a citizen. So that's uh, let's add all that up together. And you get what? I lost track of all the numbers. Right. Four, seven, 15, so 22 years I've been. That's the majority of my life. I've been, you know, not, not, not a citizen. <laughs> so I guess I identify as an immigrant. Wow. And for the last swing of our time here, Sabine, I want to pivot over to you. I mean, you were born in Canada, but I mean, you, you also have a, a, a very interesting story as far as your immigrant background is concerned. Would you, would you like to share a bit about that? Sure. So I was lucky enough to be born in Montreal, Canada. So uh, life's been pretty easy for me. Uh, compared to a lot of the refugees uh, and and other immigrants that are trying to get to Canada. Uh, my parents had to go through all of the hard work of getting to Canada um, before I was born. So they uh, immigrated to Canada from Lebanon in the 1980s before I was born. And um, they had lived through the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, they chose to stay uh, for most of the Civil War to fight for, to, like stand up for the freedom of, of their country. Uh, when things were starting to taper off near the end in the 80s, they decided that it was time for them to start a family uh, and have a bit more stability. And they were uh, so they decided to do that in Canada. My dad got to Canada uh, to Quebec first. Um, he immigrated before my mother. Um, he came through something that they were calling at the time the Lebanese Project. Um, he wasn't a refugee. It was more of a special program that they had initiated uh, for people who wanted to leave. Uh, Lebanon and made it a little bit easier for them to get here. So he was uh, able to uh, go through that program and come to Canada. My mother was actually sponsored. Uh, there was actual there was a bigger a subset of family sponsorship in Canada than we do have now. So my mother's aunt was actually able to sponsor her to join my father um, in Canada. They spent some time in Quebec. They found it inhospitable at the time, unfortunately, uh, for them. And so they moved to Ontario to uh, make sure that they're able to uh, have some better jobs and better opportunities for me, who had at that point come along. And um, so they they moved to Ontario and they lived a very, very pleasant and successful life in Canada. I'm so proud of them, actually. They, my parents lived through an entire war. They were very young when they were going through this war. They were in their 20s. And I mean, their late teens and then their 20s. They saw a lot of hardship. They were able to, uh, you know, do what they had to do uh, when it came down to it, when they decided to, so they survived that. Um, and when it was time for them to leave, they did that. They made that very difficult choice to leave their families behind, uh, much like Peter's family did, uh, to come to Canada, just so that they could have a better life for them. And they were not, because of the war, they were not able to finish their university education. They were not able to finish a lot of the goals that they had set for themselves as young people. Um, and despite that, they worked extremely hard in Canada to get to where they are today. Uh, my mother was in secretarial school. She went to, she became an executive assistant and she did all of these things. And now she's uh, pretty high up in her career. She's uh, very successful in her career. She's very happy in it. Uh, my father as well, he started out working in factories, um, you know, doing whatever work he could get in Canada. And now he's, uh, he's, he's very happy and content um, with the life he's lived in Canada as well. Uh, so they've both... Uh, they're they're both pretty successful immigrants, and I'm I'm really proud of them for being able to achieve all of that. Um, and sometimes inhospitable, and, and other times very difficult, um, you know, points in their life. And um, here I am now, you know, all these years later, 
uh, speaking on behalf of refugees, on behalf of immigrants, writing about it and speaking about it at any point that I can, because um, I saw what a great story my parents uh, were able to live. And I'd like other people to be able to do that as well. Um, the program that my mother, the program that my dad came through doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the fact that my family sponsorship was uh, more expanded than outside just like your spouse um, and, and your parents doesn't exist anymore. I'd really like those things to come back and exist again. So the people like my parents uh, who contributed uh, very positively to this country. Um, and uh, I like to say that I have as well. <laughs> I don't want to toot my own horn, but their child has also contributed <laughs> very well to this country. Um, and uh, people like that should be able to come. And the fact that we are actually reducing their opportunities to do that is really unfortunate. So um, that's my story. Very interesting. That's two immigrant stories uh, for now. Uh, I, Of course, we heard some key words in there, hard work, wanting a better life, thinking of the children, so on and so forth. Two examples, uh, and I anywhere in there I did not hear, uh, really wanted to be lazy and mooch off the federal government. So as we can see, that this is actually, those listening should know that this is actually the most more common type of story you'll hear. And I think that that's awesome that you, you, you both shared that because that's really what it's all about. And we have run out of time. Well, I could here. make more money in the United States at Georgetown in the business school than anywhere in Canada. <laughs> so that's worth pointing out too, I guess. There you go. There you go. Um, complete, complete, complete opposite, right. Of, of that stereotype, right. We're not talking about an immigrant trying to run around, move off the federal government. We're talking about immigrant working so hard that they want to go and find the, the, the most income and then work even harder. So that that's good. It's, it's the opposite. Um, so I'm going to bring us to our formal wrap up then as our time is pretty much wound down here. As I said at the beginning of the episode, guys, I mean, I, I know you both quite well by this point and we could talk hours upon hours on this topic, but we will try to bring it full circle and put a finer point on it here. I'll, each I'll throw it to each of you to give your final thoughts on what, as you guys both know very well, is our official last question of the podcast. So let me start with, with you, Sabine. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether immigration makes a better world? In other words, one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, you want people to grab from everything we discussed. What would you like to leave people with? Yeah, I just I want to leave people with the idea that uh, it, it should be pretty clear that immigrants do make a better world uh, in whatever country they end up. They end up making it better and life gets better for them as well. So it's a it's a great deal on both ends um, and everything that we can do to make it easier for them to uh, start a new life, uh, whether that be a refugee or an economic immigrant or any kind of immigrant. Uh, we should really be pursuing that. Peter, same to you. One, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything. What, what do you want someone to take away from all, all of our discussion today? Uh, two takeaways. Uh, the first being that um, don't think that we're talking about the freedom of immigrants exclusively to like move wherever they want to. I know I said that. I talked about the freedom of movement. But don't overlook the way that barriers to uh, immigration the way that they negatively impact the freedom of people who live here, right? The, our freedom of association, our ability to hire the best people for their job, our ability to hire whom we want to as owners of companies. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, we only touched upon it sort of briefly, maybe obliquely, but um, every economic estimate of the impact of immigration that I'm aware of points to positive wealth impacts on the countries that take in the immigrants. And I want to be rich. I don't know if this is a weird thing about me, right? But I want to be rich, right? And I would really like it if we could increase our GDP, if we could double it or triple it. And the estimates from economists is that that's what would happen. If we allowed more immigrants into Canada, we would increase the wealth of the average Canadian. We would increase the wealth of Canada. The same is true in the United States. And frankly, I'm sick of being poor. By the standards, by the counterfactual standard of the way we would be, I want to fly around in my own private, private helicopter. And if we didn't have these stupid limits, 
on immigration, maybe we would have been able to scoot about on helicopters and maybe we could have just sort of flown to each other's places and done the podcast live in person, right? I want to drive around in a Bentley and I want to fly around in a helicopter. Maybe that makes me weird, but if we could just, you know, maybe focus a bit more on the good things that come from wealth, we might be more inclined to allow more people in. I think that's a great place to leave it. So both of you, Sabine, Peter, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks, Sabine. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.